The small sea snail slithered along the slippery submerged stone in the shallows of the coastline, when suddenly, a hand reached out and wrapped around its spiky rounded shell, violently tearing the snail off the rock. The hand belonged to a porphyry, one of the workers who harvested a creature known to them as Murex, and to us as Bolinis brandaris. The porphyry had baited the stone with small mollusks and waited for hordes of ravenous, carnivorous, and occasionally cannibalistic murexes to swarm it in search of a meal. As the snails used their powerful tongues to pierce through the shells of the mollusk bait, the porphyry would use traps and nets to pluck thousands of these snails from the sea. The murexes would then be transported alive to a workshop. The always hungry snails could survive up to 50 days consuming their own saliva. Though the sea snails were edible and often consumed by locals, there was a far greater hidden value to Bellinus brandaris. Inside its body, the murex possessed a gland, the hypobranchial gland, where it combined an organic enzyme with dissolved bromide found in its seawater home to produce a milky white mucus. In the wild, Bellinus brandaris used this substance to sedate its prey and to scare off its own predators. And it was in search of this mucus that Porphyrae had harvested murexes for over 3,000 years. Once at the workshop, the larger snails would be separated from the smaller ones and squeezed and prodded to squirt their snot while the smaller ones were crushed and the muck was strained, all to collect as much of this precious substance as possible. For as soon as the bromide-infused mucus came into contact with the oxygen in the air we breathe, a long chemical reaction began to take place. The secretion immediately acquired a yellowish hue as the workers placed it in lead bowls. They mixed in water and salt and heated it up to 35 degrees Celsius, allowing the liquid to macerate and giving the chemical reaction time to unfold. Over the course of 10 days, as chunks of snail flesh and fat bubbled to the surface and were skimmed off by the workers, the yellowish hue morphed emerald green, then ocean blue, before violently transforming into a crimson red, and finally, deepening towards its final form. At last, a worker brought in raw, unpolished yarn. The yarn was submerged in the liquid for five hours and then removed. The workers then added more water and urine and honey to the mixture before submerging the yarn once more. Finally, they pulled the yarn out. Its original pale white coloration had been replaced by purple. The dye was ready. 12,000 snails would be harvested just to produce a gram and a half of purple dye, enough to color the trim of just one tunic. Many more snails would be harvested to color the countless silks that came to the workshop, producing opulently purple fabrics worth more than their weight in gold. From the workshop, the precious purple silk traveled by sea to the ancient city of Constantinople, to the hands of a slave in the imperial palace. 
The slave ran his hands over the finely woven purple, a color and a fabric he could never and would never wear for himself, with a history that he would likely never hear. He couldn't tear his eyes away from it until a barked order snapped him out of his reverie. He picked up the delicate silk and carefully draped it over the body of his master, the all-powerful emperor of the Romans, Alexios Komnenos. All around the emperor, the crushed and macerated mucus of millions of sea snails seeped into every fabric, furnishing him with an aura of deep crimson purple. For millennia, powerful men and women had used the color as a symbol of their wealth and power. The extensive labor was often a prohibitive factor in acquiring the precious tint. But the Roman emperors had also enacted laws limiting its usage and tying it inextricably to their right to rule. And at the turn of the 11th century, since as long as anyone could remember, purple had represented the might of the Roman emperor. As the summer of 1096 came to a close and a frost-bitten chill snuck into the air, Alexios hoped that color would once again communicate his divine might to Latin crusaders swarming his capital and aid him in bending their violent dispositions to his ends. But even if it didn't, the emperor was certain he could find other ways to solve his problem and come out on top. After all, if the Crusaders wouldn't let themselves be milked, he had no qualms about having hordes of ravenous, carnivorous, and occasionally cannibalistic bugs crushed and boiled to extract their worth. That was what it meant to don the purple. And welcome to History of the Utremer, episode 2.17, In the Court of the Purple King. Today's episode is really the first of a two-parter. Over the last few episodes, we've been throwing Mentos after Mentos into our Coca-Cola. Now it's time to shake that bitch up and see what happens. The events that happened in late 1096, early 1097, would go on to create the foundation of the political relationship between the Utremer states and their closest Christian neighbor, the Roman Empire. As Christopher Tierman puts it in God's War, quote, The negotiations between Alexios and the military leaders of the Jerusalem expedition formed a pivot around which the nature and future perception of the campaign revolved. Both sides understood the importance of what was agreed, even though they later chose to interpret events very differently. Alexios wished to use the Westerners to exploit divisions among the Turks of Asia Minor and Syria to restore a measure of Byzantine control without risking a full commitment of his own military reserves. His dilemma lay in the extent to which he imposed his authority over the Crusaders as paymaster and beneficiary, while remaining essentially a sleeping partner in the operation. Traditional Byzantine foreign policy, derived from the techniques of the Roman Empire, outlined the best course of action when dealing with barbarians, those outside the empire, or those, like the Normans in Italy and Sicily, or the Armenians and Turks in northern Syria, who, in the timeless Byzantine view of the world, were squatting on former imperial lands. 
If such tribes threatened the empire or the emperor wished to use them, the tactics remained much the same. Smother them with hospitality, learn their customs, and exploit these. Divide and rule. Forge links of dependence based on profit. Golden chains, as it were. Employ them. Byzantinize them. These were Alexis's methods in the early months of 1097, to which he added a high dose of flexible opportunism. End quote. Today, in particular, we'll focus on the two crusade leaders that seem to have presented the biggest threat for the Roman emperor, Alexios Komnenos, Godfrey of Bouillon and his new and improved peasants crusade, and the sneaky sneaky Bohemond of Trento. Sneaky sneaky, sir. As we'll see, once he had won these men over, the rest would fall like dominoes. But first, let's talk about purple. Yeah, guys and gals and everyone else, it's etymology time. So, the English word purple was borrowed from the Latin word purpura, which itself was borrowed from the ancient Greek word porpura, modern Greek porphyra. The origin of this word is debated. Some say it was a loan word, perhaps from a Semitic language, but it's also often linked to the verb pyro, which means something like mix or agitate. It's related to the Latin word ferwere, meaning to boil, the source of English fervent. So why would purple trace its origin back to a verb meaning to mix or boil? Well, it makes sense when you consider how purple tints were produced when the word was coined. Our opening today gives us a window into the supply chain of the purple dye known as Tyrian purple, which of course involves the mixing and boiling of the rare organobromine compound produced by a species of sea snail known as murex, scientific name Bolinus brandaris. A closely related sea snail, Hexaplex trunculus, was used to produce a blue dye known as tekelet, which was used in Jewish religious traditions. And in fact, the same organ that produces compounds for dyes in these snails, the hypobranchial gland, has been adapted in distantly related cephalopods to produce the ink sacs of squids and octopuses. I described most of the process in the opening. My main source for this information was the 2010 book, Purpura del Método al Poder, Purple from Method to Power, by Spanish archaeologist Pilar Fernández Juriel. Now, I have a copy of the book in Spanish, and I'm not really sure if there even is an English version, so I'll be translating these quotes myself. In section 3 of her book, Fernandez goes step-by-step step describing the process. She introduces it in this way, quote, The production of the purple dye depended on a long procedure and a complicated and costly technique. It was carried out by specialized operators in their workshops through a manufacturing process whose total comprehension, even today, eludes us in some of its phases, due to the ambiguity and the scarcity of data provided to us by ancient texts. End quote. When Fernandez says ancient texts, she means it. Tyrium purple refers to the city of Tyre in modern Lebanon, one of the key cities of the Phoenicians and one of the oldest cities in the world. Legend says that the Phoenician god Melkart built the city of Tyre as a gift for his beloved, the sea nymph or mermaid, Tyrus and named it after her. One day, the two were walking along the beach when a dog came by and bit into a sea snail. The snail was a murex, and it spurted out purple, staining the dog's mouth. Tyrus was enamored by the color, and she told Melkart that she would accept him as her lover if he gave her a suit of the same color. Melkart began to harvest these mollusks, 
and thus the Murex industry was born. Though in antiquity, the production of the tint was indeed associated with the Phoenicians and Tyre, archaeological finds indicate it has a much longer history that's been lost to the sands of time. Later, the Persians and Alexander the Great also began to use the color as a marker of royalty. And part of the reason why we don't know exactly how the dye was produced is because the methods were kept secret to avoid competition. However, with the aid of archaeology and attempts to reproduce the exact tint, specialists like Fernandez have been able to make better sense of the scant primary sources that deal with the production of Tyrian purple. As Fernandez also points out, quote, both the technique and the instruments varied very little over the centuries, as evidenced by the archaeological record found in the workshops of Sidon, Tyre, and other sites along the coasts of the Mediterranean. End quote. A lot of these techniques were actually lost in the 1204 sack of Constantinople, and after the final fall of the Roman Empire in 1453, the old methods of production vanished almost entirely. I find it very fitting that these long traditions should have, to a certain extent, died with the Roman Empire, both in 1204 and 1453. Because even if they predated the Romans, no other figure became so closely associated with the dye as the Roman Emperor. To quote Laura Rodriguez Peinao in Purpura, Materialidad y Simbolismo en la Edad Media, Purple, Materiality and Symbolism in the Middle Ages, also in Spanish originally and also my own translation, Quote, in Rome, wearing purple was a sign of opulence and social rank. During the Republic, only generals in a triumph had the privilege of wearing purple and gold, regulating its use according to the rank of the users. The adoption of purple clothing by Julius Caesar as a symbol of his power was frowned upon by his opponents, who saw in this deed a gesture of his tyranny. Yet from then on, this color became fashionable among all social classes, and substitutes were used to dye ornamental motifs. In the imperial period, rich purple fabrics became fashionable among the wealthier social classes, which led to numerous criticisms by philosophers, and a restricted use by individuals, as it was endowed with a symbolic value in relation to the princeps. When the Roman emperors Diocletian and Constantine took measures to regulate its use, prohibiting silks of this color outside the imperial circle, and establishing an imperial monopoly on its production, in which sacred purple, red-violet purple, and blue-violet were reserved for imperial dignity, they were merely carrying out a policy that confirmed the identification of purple with imperial power. At the same time when Diocletian instituted the ceremony of the Adoratio Purpurae, Adoration of the Purple, which marked the mystical solemnity of the imperial audiences, the term divine purple appears in the text applied to imperial clothing, converted into an emblem of absolute power, which the words of John Chrysostom speak to, saying, only to the emperor is it granted to wear the purple and the diadem on his head. As a symbol of imperial power and with ceremonial character, it would continue to be used in Byzantium. The emperors were purpuratus, dressed in purple. The expression to take the purple, purpura sumsit, meant to attain supreme power, and the anniversary of the imperial investiture, dia natalis purpuram, was celebrated with great pomp. End quote. Byzantium would go on to innovate with other methods of obtaining similar colors, likely because harvesting murexes was prohibitively expensive, and other dyes were used for such things as dyeing important documents. And alongside the use of purple dyes was the use of porphyry, 
an igneous rock colored purple, of course. In antiquity and the medieval era, sarcophagi were often carved out of porphyry. Charles the Bald, king of West Francia, was buried in a porphyry tub, for example. But in Byzantium, a strange reversal took place, and it instead became a marker of birth. In the great palace of Constantinople, there was a room lined with porphyry and decorated with fabrics dyed purple, known as the Porphyra, where the reigning emperor's consort would give birth to his children. Sons born in this room would be known as Porphyrogenitos, and daughters as Porphyrogeniti, purple-born, often translated as born in the purple. The historian Anna Komnini describes her own purple birth in the following way. Quote, the emperor Alexios Komnenos returned to the capital with the laurels of victory. The date was the 1st of December in the 7th indiction. He found the empress in the throes of childbirth, in the room set apart long ago for an empress's confinement. Our ancestors called it the Porphyra, hence the world-famous name Porphyrogenitos. It was a Saturday. At dawn, a baby girl was born to them who resembled her father, so they said, in all respects. I was that baby. End quote. Those events happened, as Anna said, on the 1st of December, 1083. Alexios was returning from his ongoing war with Bohemond of Tarento, and his return speaks to the importance of the event. See, Anna was Alexios's firstborn, and the first member of the Komnunoi family to be born in the purple. Alexios was a usurper. Though his uncle had briefly been emperor earlier on, he'd also been a usurper, and none of his children had been born during his reign. Alexios clearly had his eyes set on constructing a proper dynasty, and a child born in the purple would have a much stronger claim to the throne than any other. As we talked about way back in episode 1.16, Alexios and his mother, the master politician Anna de la Cini, had to make many pragmatic decisions to shore up his legitimacy. Shortly after her birth, Alexios had his born-in-the-purple daughter, Anna, betrothed to Constantinos Dukas, the born-in-the-purple son of a previous emperor, Mikhail Dukas. Constantinos was the son who'd once been betrothed to Robert Giscard's daughter. Alexios also raised Constantinos to the role of junior emperor. As we talked about in episode 1.12 and 1.16, his alliance with Maria of Alania, a Georgian princess, Mikhail Dukas' wife, and Constantinos' mother, had been crucial to the success of the Komnenian coup. The idea, so to speak, was that Constantinos would eventually follow in his father's footsteps and become emperor after Alexis's death. Maria had a lot of power in the early years of Alexis's reign and was actually quite close to her supposed-to-be future daughter-in-law, Anna Komnini, who has nothing but nice things to say about Maria. For example, quote, The Gorgon's head was said to turn those who looked upon it into stone. But anyone who saw the queen walking or met her unexpectedly would have gaped and remained rooted to the spot, speechless, as if apparently robbed of his mind and wits. There was such a harmony of limbs and features, such perfect relation of the whole to the parts and of the parts to the whole, as was never before seen in a mortal body. She was a living statue, a joy to all true lovers of the beautiful. In a word, she was an incarnation of love, come down to this terrestrial globe. End quote. Gotta love Anna's way with words. 
when Constantinos died in 1095, that left the door open to succession by Alexis' son, Ioannis Komnenos, born in 1087, and of course, in the purple. We'll be hearing more from him in the future. Constantinos wasn't the only purple-born threat Alexis had to deal with, though. Another previous emperor, the ill-fated Romanos Diogenes, also had two purple-born brats running around. Born of his wife, Evdokia Makrembolitisa, who had also been married to the emperor Constantinos Lucas and was actually Mikhail Lucas' mother. Go back to episode 1.5 for this whole story. Anna Komnini says Alexios treated Diogenes' two sons, Nikiforos and Leon, as if they were his own. But with hindsight, she also compares them to lion cubs, which is partially a pun as Leon is lion in ancient Greek, and the source of both the English name Leo and the word lion. According to Anna, Leon himself had died while serving under Alexis's brother, Isakios, in an attempt to take back Antioch way back in the 1070s. But by the 1090s, Nikiforos had become a powerful and respected figure in his own right. Still, it came as a shock to Alexios when in 1094, probably shortly after sending his embassy to the Pope at Piacenza, Alexios uncovered a coup to place the Porfirogenitos, Nikiforos, on the throne. The plot implied many high-ranking members of the imperial circle, including Maria of Alania and Alexis' own brother. Many of these people were quietly removed from power, and Nikiforos was blinded. The whole thing was kept relatively hush-hush to avoid the impression that the imperial circle was turning its back on their emperor. And just a year later, in 1095, a man claiming to be Nikiforos' brother, the long-dead Leon Dioyanis appeared at the head of a force of Cumans, another group of stepboys. As Anako Nini puts it, I myself would go even further and say that even Plato himself would have proved unequal to the task of describing the Emperor's spirit before- Uh, oh wait, uh, sorry, uh, that's the, that's the wrong line, that's just more of Anna praising her daddy. Uh, let me just skip forward a few lines, okay, ah, here are the Cumans, alright, here we go. The Cumans, who were longing to gorge themselves on human blood and human flesh, and were more than ready to amass spoils from our territories, found in the Pseudo-Dioyenis an excuse. They decided to march in full force against the Roman Empire. End quote. Now, as I mentioned, Anna calls this fella Pseudo-Dioyenis. Because, she says, Leon Diogenes had died in the 1070s. She even cites her husband, Nikiforos Vrienios, as a source for this information. However, in an article titled Unraveling the Alexiad, who was Devgenevich of the Russian Primary Chronicle and Pseudo-Diogenes of the Greek Sources by Peter Frankopan, he goes through the various reasons why we shouldn't trust Anna's account here. Reason number one, as the title of that article mentions, Anna isn't the only one to mention this Cuban attack. It's also found in the old East Slavic text, Povesti Vremenihu Letu, in English, Tale of Bygone Years. Old East Slavic is the ancestor to languages like Russian, Ukrainian, and Belarusian. Whether it was one language or a collection of similar dialects is a tricky question, in part because of modern political concerns, which I'm sure should be completely apparent to anyone listening in 2022. Anyway, 
This text is a chronicle detailing the history of the Kievan Rus from the 9th through the 11th century, probably written in the early 12th century, so just a decade or so after the First Crusade and after this attack. The title, Tale of Bygone Years, comes from the first line, which reads, These are the narratives of bygone years regarding the origin of the land of Rus, the first princes of Kiev, and from what source the land of Rus had its beginning. Because of its subject matter, it's also known in English as the Rus or Russian Primary Chronicle. In the Primary Chronicle, the Cuman attack on Byzantium is mentioned. It states that at some point in the summer of the year 1095 or 1096, the confusion is due to the different calendar they use, the Cumans marched against the Greeks with Devgenevich. That Evich at the end is a patronymic suffix in East Slavic languages, like Russian. It means of, basically. It's actually distantly related to the ending of my own last name, Martinez. That S at the end of my name comes from Latin Iki, also meaning of. So basically, Devgenevich means of Devgen, like son of Devgen. So who's Devgen? Well, that's just the East Slavic pronunciation of the Greek name Theogenes. And in the primary chronicle, there's no reference to this son of Theogenes being an imposter. What's more, Anna actually contradicts herself. As I mentioned, she cites her husband's chronicle as a source for Leon's death in the 1070s at Antioch. But her husband's chronicle states that it was Constantinos the Oyenis who had died then. Constantinos was Romanos' son from a previous marriage, and he'd not been born in the purple. And in her own chronicle, Anna mentions Leon the Oyenis participating in imperial campaigns during the 1080s, after he supposedly died. And she even mentions him dying again at a different point in the 1080s. There are other details that don't really add up, but one thing Frankopan points out is that Anna actually dedicates a good chunk of text to refuting the idea that this was the real Leon the Oyenis. Yet earlier in the text, when an imposter Mikhail Lucas had appeared with Robert Giscar in the invasion of 1081, she just kind of glossed over it. All of this leads to the conclusion that this was really a legitimate threat to Alexios. Maybe Leon the Oyenis, or maybe someone else. Frankopan theorizes that Romanos might have had another son. Later on in the primary chronicle, there is mention of a certain Leo Tsarevich, who married into a noble Rus family. Leo is, you know, Leon, while Tsarevich is son of the Tsar, Tsar, that is, son of the emperor. Sounds like Leon the Oyenis once more. And there's one more mention of a son of the Oyenis in the work of Orderic Vitalis the English monk who provided us with the opening to episode 2.13. Orderic not only describes the death of Robert Giscar, but he also recounts the tale of Bohemund's later invasion of the Roman Empire in 1106. At one point he mentions that Bohemund had with him, quote, Filium Digenis Augusti, the son of the August, the Oyenis. At the end of the day, it doesn't even matter if this was the real Leon the Oyenis or not. What matters is that people obviously believed that he was legitimate. As Frankopan says, quote, There were those in the late 11th and early 12th century who clearly not only thought that one of Romanos IV's sons was very much alive, but that he was opposed to Alexios I Komnenos in Constantinople and prepared to lend his support to others who sought to displace him, end quote. So purple. Like a 2010s era trap artist. And Alexis's life, 
everything was purple. In many ways, the color represented a threat. The porfirogenitoi could collect support from imperial insiders and stage a coup, like Nikiforos Dioyenis. And even fake porfirogenitoi could be used as legitimizing figures by foreign armies, like the pseudo-Leon Dioyenis, or even the pseudo-Mikhail Dukas that Robert Giscar had used in the 1080s. As we've discussed multiple times, at some point before uncovering Nikiforos' plot, Alexios had sent an embassy to the Bishop of Rome at Piacenza, asking for military aid that he could use to remove the Turks from Anatolia. The Turks were partially his fault after all, and he'd used an alliance with them to secure his own position. But now, they were getting to be a hassle. However, by the time they arrived, you have to wonder if Alexios felt differently about this plan. After all, what was stopping the Latins from allying with one of his enemies within the imperial circle? Or just raising up a pseudo Nikiforos or whatever, as the Cumans had done? At some point in 1096, Herb decided to give Alexios an update as to what to expect. He sent a letter to the emperor, informing him that, as was agreed at Claremont a year earlier, armies were on their way to aid him in fighting the Saracens and recuperate Jerusalem. He gave Alexios a handy list of all the armies, First, Peter the Hermit, then the brothers Godfrey Eustace and Baldwin of Boulogne, then the Bishop of Le Puy, Ademar, and Raymond Saint-Gilles, also Hugh the Great, the brother of the King of France, and Robert, Duke of Normandy, and also Robert of Flanders, and also Stephen, Count of Carnuti, by which he means Le Blois. And lastly, he informed Alexios that Bohemond was also on his way paying special attention to this knight in particular, no doubt aware of his history with the emperor. Whatever Alexios had been expecting, it almost certainly wasn't what he got. And the fact that this potentially deadly quote-unquote military aid was coming right after two attempted coups, ugh, that's not good. But for Alexios, purple also represented a way out. After all, he might not have been born in the purple, but he was definitely the one wearing the fucking purple now, and with that came the full weight of the Roman Empire. If Anna's portrayal of her father is even half true, Alexios never wavered in his belief that not only would he weather this storm of Latins, but he would use it to power his own sails. The first to arrive was Hugh, Count of Vermandois. Hugh was the younger brother of the Capetian King of France, Philip the Fat. Now, I maybe mentioned this in passing, but Philip had gotten himself excommunicated. See, Fat Phil had married a woman named Bertha of Holland in 1072. They'd had a few kids, and then 20 years later, Philly apparently fell in love with another woman, Bertrade de Montfort. Oh, but Milady was already married herself. To Falk, Count of Anjou. This is Falk the Black's grandson, by the way. You remember Falk the Black, right? From the intro to episode 2.4? Well, so anyway, Fat Phil abducted Bertrade, by which the sources mean she ran away with him. And what's worse, he repudiated his wife of 20 years, saying she was too fat. My guy, you're the one who got tagged with the the fat. So quit pointing fingers. Now, Philip the Fat was in a doubly adulterous marriage, and he had arranged an unauthorized divorce. And you know, they warned him. They told Fat Phil that if he didn't get his house in order, he'd get excommunicated. 
But Phil, apparently he was going through a midlife crisis. And, well, he just didn't give a fuck. And so he got excommunicated. A few years later, at the Council of Claremont, among other things, the Pope repeated the excommunication. But Phil wanted to work something out. So in February of 1096, he agreed to dump his mistress and go back to his church-sanctioned wife. And to sweeten the pot, he informed the Pope that his younger brother, Hugh, would be participating in this random armed pilgrimage. You know, the one you were talking about when you excommunicated me. What exactly Hugh thought of all this is impossible to know. Was it his idea to go, or was he strong-armed by his brother? We know he was around 40 at the time, and not exactly a power player in France. He'd obtained the Count of Vermandois by marriage, and he was regarded as the head of this contingent of the army only because of his powerful brother. But what exactly motivated him to go personally is a mystery to us, as we don't have any sources written from within his camp. In fact, the only source that gives us any sort of detail regarding Hugh's departure is not a Latin source at all, but rather Anna Comnini. Her account is clearly biased, though not necessarily inaccurate. She says, quote, A certain Ubus, brother of the king of France, and proud of his nobility, riches, and power, when on the point of leaving his native land, ostensibly to go to the Holy Sepulchre, sent a ridiculous message to the emperor, with a view to arranging beforehand that he should have a magnificent reception. No, emperor, he wrote that I am the king of kings, and the greatest of all beneath heaven. It is my will that you should meet me on my arrival, and receive me with all the pomp and ceremony owed to my nobility. End quote. Ubus is how Anna writes Hugh. Remember, she's god-awful at recording non-Greek names. To, to be fair to her, the, the Latins are no better at Greek names, or terms that they're not already familiar with. But Anna straight up refers to Latin names as strings of barbaric sounds. So... There you go. And yeah, Anna does not think highly of Hugh's arrogance. How much of her account we can believe is difficult to ascertain. Hugh sending a letter to Alexios seems likely to me. His attitude is certainly possible. But without any corroboration, and in light of Anna's distaste for the Latins, it's hard to trust wholeheartedly. After leaving, Hugh traveled south through France. He had with him only a handful of knights and a relatively small number of camp attendants. As I mentioned last time, his army absorbed some of the components of Emiko's forces that had traveled west into France, hoping to carry out massacres of Jews there as well. They were being led by a certain William of Melun, known better as William the Carpenter, which was apparently a reference to his strength. The army continued south into Italy, where it's possible that they received papal banners. Then, while passing by Amalfi, the whole scene from the opening of episode 2.14 played out. Some of his knights attracted the attention of Bowman of Tarento, who then decided to take the cross and inspired most of the forces besieging Amalfi to follow him. Like I speculated then, I doubt Bohemond was unaware of this expedition. So, he might have coordinated with these knights, or maybe Hugh directly, to pass by Amalfi and perform a little recruitment drive of sorts. All speculation, though. No sources indicate any direct contact between them. However, a few knights, including one of Bowman's nephews, who didn't want to wait for Bowman, joined up with Hugh's army instead. The army then headed to Bari, where they prepared to cross the Adriatic. They first sent envoys to the governor of Dorachion on the other side. This governor was none other than Ioannis, or John, Komninos, 
Not Alexis's son, who was only around eight at this time, but Alexis's nephew, son of his older brother, Isakios, who'd once been the Grand Domestic, basically head of the army, and governor of Antioch. He's the one who kept getting captured by the Turks, remember? Now, Ioannis had a checkered past. Just a few years earlier, shortly after receiving the governorship of Drakion, Ioannis had been accused of conspiring against his uncle, the emperor. The affair had been dealt with in private, but it had caused some sort of rift between Alexios and his older brother, Ioannis' father. But eventually, Alexios had dismissed the allegations and reconfirmed Ioannis in his role as governor of Dorachion, also known as Dorachium from the Latin version of the name, Durazzo from the Italian version, and nowadays as Duras in Albanian. Anna, Ioannis' cousin, relates that when Alexios received the letter from Hugh, he wrote to Ioannis and told him to be on the lookout for Franks arriving by sea. So Ioannis was ready when he received envoys from Bari. I'll let Anna pick up the tale. Quote, When Ubus had arrived safely at the seaboard of Lombardy, he sent ambassadors from there to the Duke of Dracion, 24 in number, protected with cuirasses and greaves of gold, together with the Count Serpenterius. They spoke as follows to the Duke. Know this, Duke, that our Lord Ubus is on the point of arriving and is bringing with him from Rome the golden standard of St. Peter. Understand, too, that he is the leader of the whole Frankish army. Therefore, prepare a reception for him and the forces under him, which will be worthy of his highness, and prepare yourself to meet him. End quote. Count Serpenterius is how Anna records the name Count Carpenter, in Old French, Charpentier, so William the Carpenter the one who'd led attempted massacres of Jews in France. And the golden standard of St. Peter refers to the papal banners Hugh had apparently received in Italy. Again, all of this comes from Anna. Latin sources tell us very little about Hugh. I do like the supposed arrogance of Hugh, stating that he's the leader of the whole Frankish army, when in fact he had one of the smallest contingents, like only slightly larger than Bohemond's. And in Anna's telling, of course, this pride comes before a fall. While crossing the Adriatic, Hugh's ships were caught in a terrible storm, and according to Anna, only one ship, the one he was on, survived the crossing. Hugh's lone ship was spat out by the tormentous sea onto the coast, some distance from Dorachion, with most of his army lost to the waves. There, he was apparently picked up by some of Ioannis' men and brought to Dorachion. She says Hugh was then detained and left, quote, not without supervision, but certainly free. Meanwhile, Ioannis informed his uncle, the emperor, of Hugh's misfortune and arrival. So Alexios sent a general named Manuel Butumitis to Durekion. Now, Butumitis was one of Alexios' most trusted generals. He had led naval fleets against the former ruler of Nicaea, Abul Qasim, see episode 1.16. And it seems like, in general, Alexios trusted Butumitis to represent the emperor in careful dealings with foreign powers, like the Crusaders. He will be coming up again. Butumitis had instructions to escort Hugh to Constantinople, but to avoid the main route, the Via Ignatia, which was commonly used by pilgrims from Italy. For various reasons. One, this would avoid Hugh interacting with any of the other armies on their way to Constantinople. By now, Alexios had likely heard Bohemond was on his way as well, from Italy. And even if Alexios was willing to work with former enemies, that didn't mean he was fool enough to let them expand their forces while in his borders. And two, it would prevent Hugh from attracting pilgrims to his army. 
Pilgrimage had not ceased throughout all this, and pilgrims were still making their way to Jerusalem as they had been all century. See episode 2.4. Now, they often ended up attached to these military forces, but Alexios had already seen the disaster that this particular cocktail could bring about. The forces of the Peasants' Crusade had just finished wreaking havoc throughout his empire and were about to be destroyed in Anatolia. It would be much better for Alexios if Hugh and the few knights that had survived the shipwreck remained a more slimmed-down military unit. Alexios' plan worked, and Hugh arrived at Constantinople, not only incidentless, but toothless, in mid-November, just a few weeks after the destruction of the Peasants' Crusade at Civitant. That shipwreck had actually worked out in Alexis's favor. It neutered Hugh and made him much more malleable. Though from what little the sources tell us about him, it doesn't seem like he was much of a personality anyway. And so Hugh remained in quasi-house arrest in Constantinople. Here we begin to enter into controversy, because it seems Hugh's house arrest was incredibly comfortable, and he might not have even noticed he was being handled, so to speak, on account of all the immense purple-colored luxury surrounding him and blinding him. According to Anna, at least, he was totally won over by the emperor. But the story is very different in the account of Albert of Aachen. Right after recounting what we heard in the opening last time, the arrival of Godfrey of Bouillon at Belgrade in the Roman Empire, Albert continues in the following manner, quote, When morning came, the duke and his army rose and entered the vast and strange forests of the Bulgarian kingdom, where they were met by legates of the emperor, bringing messages in these words, Alexios, the emperor of Constantinople in the kingdom of Greece, sends his entire love to Duke Godfrey and his followers. I ask you, most Christian Duke, not to allow your people to lay waste and plunder my kingdom and territories which you have entered, but to obtain a license to buy necessities, and then everything will be provided from our empire for your men to buy and sell in sufficient quantity. When the Duke learned of the Emperor's goodwill, he promised to obey the Emperor's commands in all things, Therefore, it was proclaimed to all that they should not seize anything at all by unjust force, unless it was fodder for horses. So in fact, they crossed through peacefully in accordance with the emperor's request, and arrived at his own fortress of Niche, where a wonderful abundance of food was offered as the emperor's gift to the duke, corn, barley, wine, and oil, and many game animals. To the rest, a license to buy and sell was granted. After this, the duke set out with all his army for Sophia, where he was satisfied by no less a wealth of gifts from the emperor. Then, after some days, he left and went down to Philippopolis, a splendid city. And there, in the same way, for eight days, he had a plentiful supply of all necessities as a gift from the emperor. End quote. However, then things take a turn for the worse. Quote, Messages were brought to him there that the emperor held Hugh the Great, the king of France's brother, as well as the princes Drogo and Clarembald, in prison and in chains. When the duke heard this, he sent an embassy to the emperor, requesting him to restore to freedom these princes of his land whom the emperor was holding prisoner. Otherwise, he would forfeit the duke's trust and friendship. At Silivri, the duke's messengers came back from the emperor, reporting that he had not yet made any move to give up the captive princes. This made the duke and all his company furiously angry, and they refused to give the emperor trust and friendship any longer. 
and at once the duke instructed that all the land was to be handed over for the pilgrims and foreign soldiers to plunder. They delayed there for eight days and devastated all this region. End quote. Now, Albert says that Hugh and a few other nobles were in prison and in chains, a much harsher description than Anna's account, which is backed up by the Gesta Francorum, who describes the emperor's treatment of Hugh as gaute in Latin, literally meaning something like cautiously, and in this circumstance means something like under guard. Fulcher of Chartres, who wasn't traveling with Godfrey at this point, but later became his brother Baldwin's chaplain, says he was non omnino liber, not entirely free. Nowhere else do we find a reference to straight-up imprisonment. So why does Albert exaggerate Hugh's situation? Well, again, remember, Albert's sources are getting this information secondhand, and this supposed imprisonment is the catalyst for a whole bunch of looting and raiding right around Silivri, a city right on the Sea of Marmara, and so close to Constantinople that nowadays it's within the province of Istanbul. For the soldiers, it would have been easy to exaggerate Hugh's situation as justification for their, no doubt, brutal attacks against the people of the region. Albert continues in the following way. When the emperor heard that the region had been severely devastated, he sent to the duke Rudolf Pidelau and Roger, son of Dagobert, men who were very eloquent and of the country and race of the Franks asking that the army should cease from looting his kingdom and laying it waste, and should return without delay the prisoners he was asking for. The duke, indeed, having formed a plan with the rest of the leaders, agreed to the imperial legation. He forbade looting and moved camp, withdrawing to the city of Constantinople itself with the whole company of pilgrims. There they pitched tents, lodging in a strong and irresistible band, armed with hauberks and every weapon of war. And there they found Hugh, Drogo, William the Carpenter, and Clarembald, who had been freed by the emperor, and came to meet the duke, rejoicing at his arrival and that of his large company, and falling with many kisses into the embraces of the duke and the rest. In the same way, too, the aforesaid imperial legates hurried to the duke, asking him to enter the emperor's palace with some of the foremost in his army, to hear the word of the king. The rest of the multitude should stay outside the city walls. Hardly had the duke received this legation when certain strangers from the land of the Franks arrived secretly in the duke's camp, and they warned him very seriously to beware the tricks and poisoned garments of the emperor and his deceitful words, and under no circumstances to go into his presence, no matter what coaxing promises he gave, but to sit outside the walls and in safety mistrust everything he offered to them. The duke, therefore, warned by the strangers in this way, and well-schooled in the Greeks' deceptions, did not go into the emperor's presence at all. On this account, the emperor felt a violent indignation against the duke and all his army, and forbade them a license to buy and sell. When Baldwin, the duke's brother, became aware of the emperor's indignation and saw the people in need and the very great lack of supplies, he proposed to the duke and the rest of the nobles in the army that they should once again start looting through the region and land of the Greeks, carrying off food, until the emperor was forced by these acts of malice to grant again the license to buy and sell. For it was Christmas, 
That is why, in this solemn time and these days of peace and rejoicing, it seemed good and praiseworthy to all parties and fitting in the presence of God for friendship to be renewed on both sides, between the emperor's household and the duke and all the powerful men in the army. And so peace was made. They restrained themselves from all looting and outrage. And for these four holy days, they settled in complete peace and enjoyment before the city walls of Constantinople. End quote. So here, even after the supposed prisoners are freed, Godfrey's forces decide to rampage through the Roman Empire once again. The justification this time is that Alexios had revoked their license to buy and sell goods because Godfrey had refused to meet Alexios in person because he'd heard dark rumors about Alexios's plans. I have no idea how to take that. What exactly would Godfrey's plan have been? If he didn't meet with Alexios, how was he planning to get across the Bosporus to Anatolia? Albert doesn't tell us. But he does tell us that the decision to pillage after the license was revoked was taken not by Godfrey, but by Baldwin, Godfrey's brother. And all this reminds me of the behavior of the forces of the Peasants' Crusade. If you recall, ambitious knights often got up to no good during that expedition, to win glory and gold. Albert might very well have been hearing all this from a knight or knights who participated in this raiding, and only had a vague idea of the politics going on. At any point in the transmission of events to Albert, the truth of the matter might have been distorted either by Baldwin, who was just looking to raid, or the knights themselves. The peace agreed upon at Christmas was not to last, as Godfrey continued to refuse to meet with the emperor, and Albert goes on to describe events leading to a somewhat serious confrontation between Godfrey's forces and those of the emperor. Quote, The emperor, therefore, recognizing that the duke was obdurate and that he could not summon him to his presence, received the news with renewed annoyance and removed barley and fish from sale, then bread to eat, so that the duke would be forced in this way to agree to see the emperor. But not so. One day, while the emperor was still trying to soften the duke's resistance, 500 Turkopoles, at the instigation of the emperor himself, sailed in through the straits early in the morning, armed with bows and quivers. And they shot the duke's soldiers with arrows. Some were killed and some were wounded. And they were kept away from the seashore, so that they might not be permitted to buy food there, as they were accustomed to do. Immediately, this cruel news was carried to the duke's court. He instantly ordered trumpets to sound, the whole people to arm, and to return before the city of Constantinople itself and pitch tents again. Upon this order from the duke, the trumpeters gave the signal, and everyone burst out to take up weapons, and they laid waste the palaces and towers in which they had stayed in as guests, with fire. Others they smashed to pieces, bringing about irreparable damage to the people of Constantinople. End quote. Interestingly, Anna Komnini's version of events isn't actually that different from Albert's. She says, quote, Some of the counts who accompanied Godfrey were invited by the emperor to meet him. He intended to give them advice that they should urge Godfrey to take an oath of allegiance. The Latins, however, wasted time with their usual verbosity and love of long speeches, so that a false rumor reached the Franks 
that their counts had been arrested by Alexios. Immediately, numerous regiments moved on Byzantium. End quote. I like that Albert describes Frankish envoys sent by Alexios as very eloquent, and Anna describes the Latins in general as annoyingly talkative. Anyway, as both Albert and Anna then go on to say, there was a skirmish that they describe in similar ways. The exact location is not clear, but Albert says the Crusaders were encamped by a location called Chantum Argentum, St. Silver. And Anna says they were near Arguron Limnen, Silver Lake. It seems this is somewhere on the outskirts of Constantinople, by the Blachernai Palace, which is in the northernmost sector of the city proper, or at least at this time it was. Albert says that Godfrey sent Baldwin with 500 knights to secure a certain bridge leading to Constantinople. Anna gives specific details about how archers were placed under the command of her future husband, the Caesar, basically a very high-ranking title, Nikiforos Vrienios, and they shot arrows at the advancing knights, taking care to aim at their mounts to avoid shedding Christian blood. Whether the Romans were truly as pacifist as Anna says is difficult to know, but the end result in that first skirmish seems to have been in the Romans' favor. As Albert puts it, quote, Baldwin did not have the force to withstand them from the bridge, so he made haste to flee their arrows. End quote. Both Albert and Anna agree that the conflict continued, now with heavy losses on both sides, before they finally agreed to make peace. But they differ on who had the upper hand. Albert says Baldwin was able to force the imperial forces back inside the walls of Constantinople, and then, quote, Truly, the Turkopoles and imperial soldiers, who were angry at being defeated in war and put to flight, sailed forth from the gates again and again, and in ever greater numbers, to challenge and overcome the army. Until the duke arrived, and because it was night, he reconciled everyone in peace, reminding his brother to return to the camp with everyone else, and to restrain the troops and weapons from battle in the darkness of night. In the same way, the emperor himself, fearing any longer and in greater strength to press on with this storm of war, and that his men were deserting and dying in the dusk, was glad that the duke should want to keep his men from warfare, and he also ordered that there be peace. End quote. Turkopoles, by the way, comes from Greek Turkopuli, meaning sons of Turks, basically. Christian Turkish knights in the service of the emperor, and later the crusader states. Turkish here being very loosely defined and including Turkmen, Pechenegs, as well as Syrians and other Arabs. Anna describes the battle slightly differently. She says, My lord, the Caesar took, as I have said, the experienced archers and stood on the towers, shooting at the barbarians. The Caesar's bow was in very deed the bow of Apollo. Oh, wait, no, that's Anna praising her husband's skill with a bow. Let me just move forward a bit here. Uh, like a second Heracles, immortal bow. Okay, here we go. Quote, In this fierce engagement, many on both sides fell, and the emperor's men who had attacked with such recklessness were wounded. As the Romans showed greater spirit, the Latins gave way. Thus, Godfrey, not long after, submitted. End quote. 
So both agree that casualties were high, but they also both want to save face and say that they were really winning. In reality, the whole thing was lose-lose, and peace was in everyone's best interest. On the whole, Anna and Albert tell very similar tales, but there are some differences. Some of these are just details missing from one account or the other. However, there are also some differences that directly contradict each other. One of these is the date. Albert puts all of this around late December and January, while Anna says this took place in early April, around Easter. She actually says the Latins attacked on Thursday, April 2nd, 1097, the day after the 16th anniversary of the Comnenian coup of 1081, when Alexios Komnenos, her daddy, had usurped the throne, and some of his supporters apparently feared that the Latins were God's retribution for their sins that day. But I'm more inclined to trust Albert's timing here, as it lines up better with other events. We'll come back to why Anna might have used the date of April instead of January. Albert and Anna also differ as to the reasons for Godfrey's hesitance to meet with the Emperor. Albert, as we heard, says he was warned about the Emperor's trickery and was just generally distrusting of the Greeks. Anna has a different reason, quote, when the emperor urged Godfrey to cross the Sea of Marmara to come to him, he let one day pass after another and postponed doing so on one pretext after another. The truth was that he was awaiting the arrival of Bohemund and the rest of the counts. For although Peter, for his part, undertook this great journey originally only to worship at the Holy Sepulchre, the rest of the counts, and especially Bohemond who cherished an old grudge against the emperor, were seeking an opportunity of taking their vengeance on him for that brilliant victory he had gained over Bohemond when he engaged in battle with him at Larissa. The other accounts agreed to Bohemond's plan, and in their dreams of capturing the capital had come to the same decision, which I have often mentioned already, that while in appearance making the journey to Jerusalem, in reality, their object was to dethrone the emperor and to capture the capital. But the emperor, aware of their rascality from previous experience, sent an order by letter that the auxiliary forces with their officers should station themselves by squadrons and watch whether any messenger came from Godfrey to Bohemond and the other counts behind, or contrarywise, one from them to him, and if so, to prevent their passage. But in the meantime, the following incident occurred. End quote. The following incident is the battle both Albert and Anna describe. Interestingly enough, Albert does describe a message from Bohemond to Godfrey immediately after the battle. Quote, the emperor sent a legation to the duke, speaking in this way. Let the hostilities cease between us and you. And the duke come into my presence, receiving from me, with no misgivings, hostages, and my assurance that he shall come and return unharmed, certain of all the honor and glory we can bestow on him and his men. The duke graciously assented to this, on condition that hostages should be given who were men in whom he would be able to have confidence concerning his own life and safety. And thus he would go down without hesitation, and speak to the emperor willingly, with his own voice, and face to face. Shortly after the duke made this reply, the emperor's legates returned, and certain other legates who came to that same court from Bohemond's direction greeted the duke, speaking in this way. Bohemond, most wealthy prince of Sicily and Calabria, asks you not to return to friendship with the emperor in any way, 
but to withdraw into the Bulgarian cities of Adrianople and Philippopolis and to spend the winter months there, confident that at the beginning of March, Bohemond himself will be there with all his forces to help you overcome this emperor and invade his domain. End quote. So Albert's interpretation of Bohemond's intention lines up perfectly with Anna's. However, unlike Anna, he says Godfrey turned the offer down, saying, quote, he had not left his homeland and family for the sake of profit or for the destruction of Christians, but had embarked on the journey to Jerusalem in the name of Christ, and he wished to complete the journey and fulfill the intentions of the emperor, end quote. Albert goes on to say that the emperor learned of this contact between Bohemond and Godfrey, and it made him so nervous that he agreed to give Godfrey his own son as a hostage. Not just any son either. Alexis's heir, the future emperor. So what's going on here? Well, I think Anna's account is just a bit scrambled. Maybe on purpose, or just by mistake. Though the former's more likely, if you ask me. She says Godfrey had already agreed to Bowman's plan to invade Constantinople before embarking on the pilgrimage, but I think it's more likely that he first heard of this plan in January when Albert says, I don't think he completely turned Bohemond down though. I think he used this plan as a cudgel to threaten Alexios with and get a very good hostage as well as extort the emperor. Albert says that after they made peace, Godfrey received a weekly payment of gold for months until the army was ready to move on. Given Godfrey's previous behavior in Lorraine, this seems exactly like something he would do. Hey, Alexios, baby, you know, I have this other offer to dethrone you and take over your capital. Can you beat that? And it turns out Alexios could, with a very good hostage and lots of gold. But what exactly was Bohemon trying to do? Well, it's hard to know. Obviously, Anna has her own reasons to paint Bohemon as a conniving trickster. I fear you're underestimating the sneakiness, sir. But even Albert might be reading into events. After all, he too is writing after Bohemon's attempted invasion of the Roman Empire. Still, given the corroboration here, I think we can cautiously say that Bohemon was probably trying to ally with other crusade leaders against Alexios. Probably not to actually topple the guy, but at least to strong arm him a bit. There's also a slim chance that Bohemon was acting as the Pope's agent in all this. After all, the Pope's ultimate dream was to force Alexios to accept papal supremacy. And Bowman was very closely connected to Urban, so he might have either officially received instruction to threaten Alexios, or maybe he was acting on his own to squeeze a favor out of the Pope back in southern Italy. Whatever the truth of it, Bowman was unable to form an alliance with Godfrey, and it seems like this failure convinced him to pick up the pace and get to Constantinople as quickly as possible, arriving in early April. Once there, he presented himself as Alexis's most loyal supporter, and Alexios presented himself as totally willing to let bygones be bygones. As Anna puts it, quote, Knowing that he himself was not of noble descent, with no great military following because of his lack of resources, he wished to win the emperor's goodwill, but at the same time, to conceal his own hostile intentions against him. With only ten Celts, he hurried to reach the capital before the rest. 
Alexis understood his schemes. He had long experience of Bowman's deceitful, treacherous nature and desired to talk with him before his companions arrived. He wanted to hear what Bowman had to say, and while he still had no chance of corrupting the rest, they were not far away now, he hoped to persuade him to cross over to Asia. When Bohemond came to his presence, Alexis at once gave him a smile and inquired about his journey. Where had he left the counts? Bohemond replied frankly and to the best of his knowledge to all these questions, while the emperor politely reminded him of his daring deeds at Larissa and Dorachion. He also recalled Bohemond's former hostility. I was indeed an enemy and foe then, said Bohemond, but now I come of my own free will, as your majesty's friend. End quote. We were bad, but now we're good. We're moving into your neighborhood. In the background of all this, we have to remember that Alexios was a usurper who faced quite a number of attempted coups during his rule, two of them right before the Crusaders arrived. We know that his dynasty will rule the empire for nearly a century, but throughout the 11th century, Constantinople had been a revolving door of emperors. Sure, 16 years was a good run, but there was no reason to expect that another ambitious noble family couldn't dethrone the Komnenoi, or more dangerous yet, that the Komnenoi might decide to dress a different member of their clan in purple. It's very possible that Godfrey's hesitation to meet with the emperor was being fueled by Constantinopolitan insiders who wanted to use his army for their own ends. And it's even more likely that Bohemond was in contact with imperial forces aligned against Alexios. After all, various members of his family, including his brother Guy, were members of the Roman court. If these interactions haven't come down to us, it's probably because none of our Latin sources were privy to these attempts, and because Anna had no reason to paint her father's support as resting on such thin ice. The conflicts between various elements of Godfrey's forces and the imperial forces can be explained as either elements of negotiation as Godfrey wanted to extort the emperor, or even as Godfrey's lack of control over his own forces. After all, although Albert says this was at Godfrey's command, it was his younger brother Baldwin at the head of the force that attempted to besiege Constantinople. Baldwin will be pursuing his own agenda in the future, so I don't doubt his willingness to do so at this stage of the crusade either. The whole interaction from late 1096 to early 1097 is often simplified as Greeks versus Latins, but it's really the tale of various individual interests trying their best to gain the upper hand. Just as none of the crusade leaders spoke for the army as a whole, I'm sorry, Hugh of Vermandois, they had the other leaders and even their subordinates to consider. Alexios didn't speak for the whole of the Roman Empire. He didn't even speak for his own family. One particular quirk of later Roman politics is the relationship between the emperor and his populace. In The Byzantine Republic, People in Power in New Rome, Anthony Caldellus explores the recurring theme of Byzantine emperors being held accountable for service to the state in a manner more consistent with republics than absolute monarchies. In a nutshell, although emperors weren't elected officials, there were mechanisms to replace them which we see play out over centuries of coups. To quote Caldellus, 
The republicanism of Byzantium was a function not so much of institutions as of the ideological context in which those institutions operated. For instance, there was no structure of public law that defined the purpose and scope of the exercise of monarchical power within the republic. That was something that emperors and subjects knew and negotiated between them by virtue of being shareholders in the republic. It was not any written constitution that educated emperors as to the purpose of their power, yet they consistently proclaimed that it was to serve the republic. No institutions set formal limits on the emperors, yet they crossed the limits of consensus at their peril. There were no laws that regulated the manner of the succession, and here the people had the final say. In sum, the real power of the people was extra-legal and outside the operation of institutions. In fact, when the people intervened, that often took the form of a suspension of legal authority during which some even took the opportunity to commit criminal acts. But the purpose of these non-institutional interventions was to institute a new legal authority, or to restore one that was in jeopardy. Byzantium oscillated between the animate law of the emperor, a state of permanent exception that was stable only insofar as the emperor chose to respect the norms of the republic, and the extra-legal sovereignty of the people, which, in the absence of fixed institutions, was often asserted in a violent and revolutionary way. Precisely because it could make and unmake imperial legitimacy, it operated beyond the sphere of imperial law. End quote. We can see this rather unique ideology at play in how Anna describes the Caninian coup. Alexis's usurpation was not a legal act, it was a coup but it was a moral act that served to right the ship, so to speak. But Alexis wasn't all of a sudden immune to the same sort of reaction. That's why Anna has to go out of her way to make sure the character of Alexios in her work is unimpeachable, a servant of the empire with the full confidence of its populace. But the threat of removal still hung over him, like a sword of Damocles hanging over the head of the emperor. God damn it, I've been reading too much fucking Anakomnini, and now I keep using Greek mythology metaphors. What was I saying? Yeah, so one detail that stands out to me as interesting is that, as I mentioned, Anna describes these events happening close to the anniversary of Alexis's coup. And she explicitly describes fear in the hearts of imperial insiders that they were going to pay for their actions, right before describing the attack of Godfrey's forces on the capital. She says, quote, the Latins marched on Byzantium, starting with palaces near the Silver Lake. They demolished them completely. An assault was made on the city walls, not with siege engines, because they had none, but trusting in their great numbers, they had the effrontery to try to set fire to the gate below the Baclarni Palace. The vulgar mob of Byzantines, who were utterly craven, with no experience of war, were not the only ones to weep and wail and beat their breasts in impotent fear when they saw the Latin ranks. Even more alarmed were the emperor's loyal adherents. Recalling the Thursday on which the city was captured, they were afraid that on that day, because of what had occurred that earlier Thursday, vengeance might be taken on them. End quote. Uh, by the way, when Anna says Byzantium and Byzantines, she's referring to Constantinople and Constantinopolitans, respectively, using the ancient pre-Constantine name for the city. 
likely to emphasize the fact that this was an ancient city with a long history. Now, stating that the emperor's loyal adherents feared some sort of vengeance for their actions strangely comes close to denouncing her father. It presents his coup as deserving of some sort of counter-coup. But if you read it in the context of the ideology Caldellus describes, it makes more sense. The Comnenian coup was indeed understood as a transgressive act, going against the norms. But this type of transgression was justified by the Byzantine ideology. And Anna alluding to the possibility of usurpation at that moment, perhaps even fiddling with the timeline because it's far more likely that these events happened in January, not April. To me, that shows that there was something going on that really threatened Alexios' position. Anna is very direct in saying that the Crusaders wanted to remove Alexios. But as future history will show, when the Latins do remove an emperor, they'll do so ostensibly in support of a Roman's quote-unquote legitimate claim to rule. So I have a hunch that there was something more at play here than just Bowman's supposed desire for vengeance. And if I was a betting man, I'd say Anna's pseudo Leon the Oyenis was wrapped up in all this as well. According to Orderic Vitalis, he would later work with Bohemond, so maybe 1097 is when they first made contact. Unfortunately, there's no way our best source, Anna, is going to tell us directly that Godfrey or Bohemond was in contact with Imperial insiders looking to recruit them to overthrow the Emperor. And meanwhile, our best source for Godfrey's side, Albert of Aachen, is getting his information secondhand from returning soldiers who were obviously not invited to meetings of high strategy. Those mysterious Franks who Albert mentioned warned Godfrey of the Emperor's machinations could easily have been representatives of an imperial faction. But we're not given any detailed information regarding them or what they actually said. In the end, we're left with a string of events that can be interpreted in myriad ways. We will never know what actually happened behind the scenes. But it is clear that Alexios won. Back in episode 1.16, I quoted historian Barbara Hill's take on Alexios's supposed weakness before women, and I think it's equally applicable here. Quote, Alexios was weak before nobody, but a ruthless man with the strength to implement a ruthless regime. End quote. In 1097, no coups occurred. Godfrey and Bohemond were both forced to come individually to meet the emperor in his court, where he showered them with gifts, those poisoned garments, obviously fine purple silks, maybe even some of the precious murex-dyed fabrics. And thus, for the time being at least, he bent them to his will. Whatever other options they might have explored, considering the relative weakness of his rule, were cut off from them. And this is speculation on my part, but I don't think it's any coincidence that Alexis's rule seems to have become even more iron-fisted in the later 1090s. His usurpation in 1081 had been thanks to his alliances, like the one with Maria of Alania. But his own personal position was never really a given, until it was. There were various attempts to dethrone him between 1081 and 1096, but that number dwindles after 1096 until his death in 1118 at which point his chosen heir succeeded him. The only standout is Bohemond's attempt, which we'll be covering in more detail in the future. Some sources indicate Alexios was very unpopular in the last two decades of his rule, which, to me, speaks to a man that no longer needed to compromise or keep everyone happy. 
he'd done enough of that to make sure his position was unassailable. That's my more speculative take, at least. Again, we don't know the specifics of what was going on, particularly in imperial circles. But Anna gives us a summary of her father's strategy that I think really gets close to identifying Alexios' tactics, even if it is super biased. After quickly relating how Alexios dealt with a certain Count Raoul, who by the way does not appear in any other sources, and is probably just an amalgamation of various other crusade leaders, she says, quote, After him came another great contingent, a numberless, heterogeneous host gathered together from almost all the Celtic lands with their leaders, kings, and dukes, and counts, and even bishops. The emperor sent envoys to greet them as a mark of friendship and forwarded politic letters. It was typical of Alexios. He had an uncanny provision and knew how to seize a point of vantage before his rivals. Officers appointed for this particular task were ordered to provide vittles on the journey. The pilgrims must have no excuse for complaint for any reason whatsoever. Meanwhile, they were eagerly pressing on to the capital. One might have compared their number to the stars of heaven or the grains of sand poured out over the shore as they hurried towards Constantinople. They were indeed numerous as the leaves and flowers of spring, to quote Homer. For all my desire to name their leaders, I prefer not to do so. The words fail me, partly through my inability to make the barbaric sounds. They are so unpronounceable and partly because I recoil before their great numbers. In any case, why should I try to list the names of so enormous a multitude, when even their contemporaries are indifferent at the sight of them? When they did finally arrive in the capital, a considerable number of soldiers accompanied them and persuaded them to obey the emperor's commands. Alexios invited them to visit him separately. He talked with them in private about his wishes and used the more reasonable among them as intermediaries to coerce the reluctant. When they rejected advice and found ingenious methods of evasion by making new demands, he refuted their objections with no difficulty at all and harried them in a hundred ways until they were driven to take the oath. Alexis' victory over both Godfrey and Bohemond was manifested in the oaths they took to him. Hugh of Vermandois had been easy to convince, but even though Godfrey and Bohemond had required more work, eventually they too had acquiesced. And like dominoes tumbling, Godfrey and Bohemond's oaths would ensure that when the time came, all the leaders of the crusade would find themselves swearing some sort of oath to Alexios Comdinos personally. But here's the thing, guys and gals and everyone else, these oaths are among the most controversial aspects of the entire crusade, and they've been so from 1097 until now. They will come to not only shape the relationship between the Emperor and the Army of the Cross, but the relationships between the future Utremer rulers, as they bicker over the extent to which they truly were the Emperor's men. Music